0: We wanna be able to really, really formulate for every ingredient to hit every nutrients, like you say. We really are trying to target nutrients and patterns of that and I think ultimately we'll get better at that. I think we've gotten better at it in some species and certainly that's where our feeding standards have gone, you know, looking more at that holistic pattern of that and so i think companions will get that way but it, it's a little tougher in those species and uh so I, there's always going to be questions you know if you do one if long as there's one research study out there you know that is it'll generate enough questions you know to keep us all busy for the end of time yeah you know? A whole new era of communication in
1: the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Pro-AMPAC is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Tired of one-size-fits-all solutions that don't quite fit? At Wilbur Ellis, we're bringing custom back to the customer. We know that for your pet food and treats to shine on the shelf, you need to start with the best. After all, even the best recipe is only as good as its ingredients. From nutrition to preservation to blending and bottling, make one call to Wilbur Ellis Nutrition to find it all. We don't sell to you, we work with you. A true partnership to meet your needs. Follow Wilbur Ellis Nutrition on LinkedIn to learn how partnering with a purpose could double the power of your team.
2: Welcome to the Pet Food Science uh, Podcast. We're here today to talk more about uh, nutrition, and I have the uh, great honor and, and privilege of uh, interviewing Dr. Harmon, whom I've known for many years, and we've interacted on a number of projects. Um, Dr. Harmon, I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into nutrition, and and sort of maybe a, a little understanding for the group what uh, what what that kind of broad nutrition experiences you've had. Yeah,
0: my, like many students, I suppose my route was the circuitous one in terms of where I ended up and how things worked out. I, uh, as an undergraduate student, you know, you, you start to college and you have goals and you think. And I was, I suppose, like a lot of students, the first member of my family that ever went to college. So I didn't have a lot of guidance. And uh, at, at the end of two years, they made me choose a major. You know, and so I kind of looked at what I had taken and what fit best. And there was a nutrition program that fit very well with what I had done and what I was going. I said, OK, I'll pick this one. And uh, so I was actually got a bachelor's degree in nutrition at Ohio State uh, many years ago. And then kind of at the end of my program, I was I was you know, some sort of how things work out. My last year, last two quarters at Ohio State, I needed one hour to graduate. And so I uh, didn't know what to get that. And I talked to a professor. He goes, why don't you come and do a little project? So he had me do a research project for that one hour. I needed to fill in my thing. And so I got to do some uh, in vitro work in the lab there and, and do some things and learned a little bit about that. And so it really got me in. And he got me interested in going to graduate school. And so it was literally my last quarter of college, I started applying to graduate schools, so which was very late in the game. and. And somehow, I got a call from Bud Britton in Nebraska who asked me if I wanted to come to graduate school. And it was just like, yes, very much. And so that all worked out very well. I got into a wonderful program by chance and uh, really enjoyed the the process. And so my background was totally in ruminants. I uh, did my master's and PhD in ruminant nutrition And so uh, to end up in companion animals, you know, was quite a reach in many ways. But uh, I know you know, Dennis, you know, when I went to school, there wasn't a, you couldn't major in companion animals. There wasn't, you know, probably what I knew more about was my own dogs and cats than cattle. But uh, there really wasn't a column to choose to pick companion animals back then in terms of that. So I always had that interest. And, uh, but that was really not my training at all in terms of getting into research and nutrition, particularly. Yeah. What do you think some of the
2: basic principles are that sort of overlap that as you look at nutrition as a broad, broad topic that overlap between all the species you've been involved with?
0: Well, I, I, obviously, you know, health and well being is a big part of that. You know, it, it, it's very different. Because I know you have a background in, in production animals as well, in terms of how we view that, in terms of efficiency and productivity approach to nutrition, where we're trying to optimize everything, and then you get into companion animals. I learned, you know, really after I got into it, it was very different, and that that's no longer your goal. You know, everything is where we want longevity. Health and longevity is it's very different there in terms of what your goals in nutrition are. Uh, certainly, uh, both of those I think are quality of life in terms of the, the, the round the nutrition program. You know how can we impact that? And uh, uh, that, that's a tough one. Yeah, you
2: know it's interesting. I think that optimum nutrition gets shifted, doesn't it? So on the one hand, in in those uh, animal agricultural. You know, we can say, well, wow, maximum efficiency, maximum growth. Uh, uh, and um, suddenly, you know, those aren't so important. And we start, like you said, quality of life and that human-animal bond that, that, that the pet does so much for the, for, for, for the pet owner. And, and, you know, people say, these are, these are parts of my family. I want to treat them the very best I can. And, and you say, wow, that's a different nutritional package. One of the things that, that I've always, you know, we sort of struggle with, I think, in pet nutrition space is that people read uh, what's on the label and they say, you know, here's, um, here's, here's the food I want to buy. But from a nutritionist perspective, it's a lot more than what's on the label. And, and I just wonder if you could talk about that sort of tension between providing ingredients and providing nutrients, um, because... I think you know that's uh, maybe on on your very strong point with the production animal. Everybody knows it's it's nutrients, but from the from the pet food, uh, it's a little more to say. But there's isn't there? a
0: lot more discrimination, if you will, in terms of those ingredients. Certainly in the pet food industry, than we ever deal with in the livestock industry. Uh, a lot of it's probably unfair and uh, you know occasionally maybe not, but uh, more often than not unfair. and uh, I would I would argue that there's probably more to quality of production than ingredients and, and dealing with random pet foods, you know in terms of what's out there in the marketplace. you could probably have very similar labels and have widely different products. And that, that's what they don't grasp, I think, uh, many times in terms of looking at that, you know, because the information on those labels is pretty limited and, uh, and uh, what really goes into that and how it's produced and how consistently it's produced can vary tremendously, as you know. And so I, I think that's a bigger deal to me than, like you say, than ingredients. I, I think that's one. That's too, maybe it's just because it's an easy target. I don't know. It's easy. Therefore, we can focus on it and uh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, one of some of the work
2: you've done in the past looking at the availability of soy, and I think, you know, the, we're dealing with, uh, you know, with a cat and an obligate carnivore and a dog, a, a carnivore for sure, and yet your work shows that soy has some real value and, and is very well used by the pet, and I just wondered if we could dive a little deeper into, again, there, here's this ingredient, it's a plant-based protein source, a, Kenan, kind of, what do you think about that?
0: As you look back at those, at those studies, well, the ones where we did a lot of several different soys and several different amounts of soy, and I think what we learned, you know, uh, large amounts as a single a single source of protein, it, it can be too much to the system. I think at times, but as a component of a high quality diet, uh, soy. Is a very high quality protein. I mean, that's why it's so widely used, you know, in terms of uh, animal production throughout. It is the gold standard for protein supplementation to the majority of animals fed in the world, no doubt, in terms of that, I think. And so, uh, in terms of protein quality and the amino acids and profile that it provides, you know, it probably has the advantage because of its. Place is it's probably the best studied protein source, you know that we have. And uh, are there higher quality, what we would call high quality protein? Sure, sure. But in terms of the quality you get for the cost and uh, the nutrient availability, it's an outstanding ingredient, you know, as a component of a of, of of a diet, you know. Like I said,
2: you know, I would I I think there's this really standard nutritional thought that I'd like to talk a little bit about you 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 put it in what you said is that idea that no significant no no ingredient is going to be by itself the optimum uh food so that we end up as nutritionists doing this complementation where where you're getting maybe you know a little more <laughs> lysine from from one source and tryptophan you know, although they're high, high in both, maybe higher in one than another, and, and you start putting together those different ingredients to make a better food than each individual ingredient would have been, you know, perhaps by itself. Anyway, that's my concept. What do you think about it? No, that? I would
0: agree with you 100%. Like I said, our diets are, are really complex. They're made up of many ingredients. Soy is an excellent component of that. What I wanted as my single source of protein in pet foods, probably not but as a component of that diet and what it brings, it's outstanding, you know, and uh, I, th- I think it's it's a, it's a valued ingredient. Yeah, I, I don't shy away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think it's important. I, I think, you know,
2: intuitively we want, I, I remember giving a talk once and I had my pet and, and Wishful is inside, outside pet, you know, and she'd occasionally go out into the hunting, you know, and she'd go hunting. And, and and someone asked me, you know, do you have a wheat field near you? And I said, yes. And, and they, because I, you know, was living in Kansas at the time is wishful go out and hunt there. And yes. And, and then the, with a smile. Uh, I was then asked, was she hunting wheat? <laughs> and of course the answer is, uh, yeah, no, she wasn't doing that. Um, but but it's still for from a nutritionist that complementation of many ingredients is really just so important and, and I, I wanted to kick around with you because I think your work
0: really shows the value of that. Yeah, we were we were able to a lot of ingredients, you know, and the stuff that we did with uh you guys and uh learned a lot, I think, about those ingredients in terms of uh, what the what the value was to uh to, to the canine, if you will. Yeah. See
2: that's that's the that's the key, isn't it? I'm so pleased you brought that up because in the end, it's not what we think about the ingredient that's valuable. What's valuable is what's really getting the value to the pet, right? To be to be absorbed and be metabolized
0: by the pet. Most well, definitely, you know, and that's our goal. You know, to uh, look at the utilization of those, and uh, I think we were able to do that in, in and a lot with a lot of different ingredients and. Uh, Hopefully, provided some good information. I know I still get calls about some of it from people at times wanting some information. So yeah, we're able to do some. Yeah,
2: that's always always a value, isn't it? When you know that you know through the years, people are, are still touching it and saying, "Yeah, that was that was something of a value." Yeah, you know, we have this whole other area I wanted to talk about some, which is kind of the I don't know if we call it nutraceuticals or botanicals or or what that is that you know we don't recognize them as essential, but perhaps they have value. And I just wondered what you thought about that category. It's kind of uniquely human pet. I don't maybe you're doing it in the large animal nutrition, but it
0: seems more like on our side. Yeah. There's a little bit of it out there in, in the production animals, obviously. There's so much pressure on uh trying to keep antibiotics out of the food chain and and, and antimicrobial resistance. People are looking for alternatives to the kinds of things that uh, those kind of essential oils and other, like you say, nutraceuticals, that's a very broad term, uh, can bring. We've done some work in recent years uh, with CBD and companion animals, because that was uh, uh, an important component here in our state uh that we did a project with and uh yeah it's hard there are hard things to study sometimes in terms of really having the perfect model to see where you can see benefit from them you know it's one of those things i always like to describe a lot of those they're rarely if ever bad and occasionally they're very good but it's hard to predict when that's going to happen you know kind of kind of things you add yeah yeah yeah
2: so how you know how might we tell you know a consumer if they're thinking about this when you've been in the area i've been in the area i i don't really know what to tell them um, sometimes i sort of say i hope this stuff doesn't work because i know so little about it that if it's as powerful as you're saying oh, wow
0: yeah no it's hard like i said it's just i don't know tell me how to you know, show me the data. Number one, yeah. Show me, show me why. Convince me the why, not just what somebody said. But you know, like I said, like you said, a good study that explains why it has value. And uh, those are hard to do, and they're expensive, and so it's hard to it's hard to have that data to back these things. Yeah.
2: Perhaps that's a reason that you need to continue to uh, train graduate students, so that uh, there, there's a there's a huge area, right? I mean, it, it's it's possibly very significant, uh, and, and just really more
0: research needed. There's always more needed, and again, it just gets more challenging all the time. I think to to do uh, just because of the things we talked about the cost and everything associated with it. it it's it's a it's an issue, yeah. Well,
2: Dr. Ramnarain, I always like to ask people, and I hope you will you'll take a little time to tell me. You've been in this industry a long time. You've recruited people and been on on uh, national, international groups. Uh, what 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 do you think makes for a good uh, team? You know, someone you might wish to be in your team. What do you look for to say? Here's someone I really want to I want to bring in, or I want to work with. What characteristics might they have?
0: You know, in in dealing with students for the last 40 years, you know, the the first thing that always comes up with new graduate students, I think, A, is time management in terms of how they use that. You know, they come from a point in their life when, you know, they've kind of been uh, tunnel vision of just taking care of their classes. And now we want them to do so many other things in addition to that. And so those individuals that have that ability to manage their time efficiently and be productive uh individuals that have the drive to finish things you know lots of people like to start things it's tough to finish things and, and that's that's an important characteristic i think to be successful or maybe to be productive yeah i work in a field i always tell students i work in a field where you know you're given a lot of freedom you know and you're not rewarded for working hard. You're rewarded for what for being productive. You know you have to actually accomplish things, and so th- that kind of characteristic I think uh, is really needed uh, in terms of that. And so yeah, it's uh, it's very important. And and I've learned even more so even in today's world. I, you know, one of the things I the longer I get in ca- career, the more I value is the ability to write and our students are so poorly trained for that more and more all the time because the world we live in that's still you know uh uh, such a huge asset to what you can get done in a given amount of time uh, because it's still so important for everybody
2: yeah it really brings that communication component in that i haven't i haven't thought about that much but i think that's really interesting because in the end I, i had someone tell me and i actually disagreed with them but foundationally, probably they were right they said you know, what your science is doesn't matter much if you can't communicate it. And I argued, well, it matters to me. <laughs> but but what you're saying is, you know, you want to be successful,
0: then you got to communicate this. Oh, absolutely. And it, even more and more and more for the world we work in, or at least I work in the university, you know, it's all about, it's writing at the beginning when you develop proposals to get this funding that you need to do. And it's writing at the end for the, papers you've got to publish to be able to do that and uh it, all the fun stuff's in between but you know you've got to be good at that yeah what do you, what do you think as you look at the people that have uh, maybe succeeded
2: at that what are you telling them as as they come through your graduate program and saying you know here's the, here's the universe of possibilities out there you know when i came through everyone wanted me to be them which was uh, your position you know the the uh uh, quality, esteemed professor and director. I, I, you have many titles, I think. But, but it turns out probably most of your students don't do that. What 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 do you tell
0: them? I tell them, I give them lots of, you know, and there's so many examples through the years, Dennis. It's a really good point because most of the people uh, always end up somewhere else than they thought they'd ever be, you know. Uh, when, when you work in industry, most people you know work in the industry, the name of their companies change six times and, You know, they they, or they never thought they would work in industry. They always wanted to be at the university or vice versa. And so there was all those things. You just never know where you're going to end up because one of the I think that's one of the things about being so specialized and highly trained, you know, there's not six million jobs out there for you. You know, there's a few if you're lucky and uh, you kind of have to find your niche and where you fit in that because you are very special. And uh, you don't know what that's going to be. I've, I've got students, like you say, I've got several that are at the university, but I've got people with the FDA. I've got people that are nutritionists in a feedlot. I've got people that are, you know, uh, all over the spectrum there in terms of industry and, and academia and everything else. So you just don't know. And so, yeah. yeah I, I would argue to them, you know, that's why you not only focus on what you have to do, you focus on what people are doing around you. Take advantage of that opportunity you know to learn because you just don't know what tools you're going to need, you know Yeah. yeah, that's a good a good insight,
2: isn't it that we none of us none of us are that individual contributor by themselves anymore. We really have to succeed in a team. How do you train that? Any any
0: ideas? Well, no, no. It's, it seems like that gets harder as well uh, uh, of oh, that whole team effort. You know, I know when I when I was in graduate school, you know, you think about the difference in those time. Uh, we had, I would say, 25 to 30 graduate students just in room nutrition, you know, and not to mention the rest of the department. And so you had such an opportunity. Everybody helped everybody else, and you learned so much from the other grad students. And now I think us and everybody else's programs are much smaller and uh, more specialized. And so yeah, I think that opportunity probably isn't as great. That's a really good question. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wanted to spin
2: back on nutrition. Where do you see it going? If you if you could pull out your crystal ball and say. I think this is really going to be important. And I'd like to maybe direct my graduate students there or, or recruit for people who want to work in that area. What, what's, what's on the horizon or even over the horizon from your perspective? Wow. I think, I think
0: we'll get, you know, it's, I think one of the challenges, for example, companion animals particularly, one of the challenges has been, let's face it, the things you can do are very restricted compared to working with farm animals and and what you can accomplish nutritionally. I think that's a challenge, but I think the tools will get better and we will be able to do a better job of, I hate to use the word modeling, but that's the kind of picture I'm going in my mind. You know, it's like you say, we want to be able to really, really formulate for every ingredient to hit every nutrient, like you say. We really are trying to target nutrients and patterns of that. And I think ultimately we'll get better at that. I think we've gotten better at it in some species. And certainly that's where our feeding standards have gone, you know, looking more at that holistic pattern of that. And so I think companion animals will get that way, but it, it's a little tougher in those species. And uh, so there's always going to be questions you know if you do one if long as there's one research study out there you know that is it'll generate enough questions you know to keep us all busy for the end of time yeah
2: isn't that the interesting thing i i i think one of the things that as you change in your your maturity level maybe you start going you know i don't expect this study to completely answer all questions. I want to design it to answer a specific question, and I expect it actually to to um, to generate more questions than than perhaps the one I'm specifically answering. Wonder how again how you feel about that. What do you think?
0: How do we how do we train someone to think that well, way? Well, I just think that's part of the process. You know, I think yes, if you design a study, you know, like you said, if you design a study well, you should be able to target a very finite hypothesis right that is going to be tested in that study and yet all those other things that come up throughout that review of the data and interpretation always go oh what about this what about this you know and so i think that's the nature of research you know that's why it's research and not search right because we're going to get it all the first time you know and uh, that's the beauty of
2: it yeah. It's interesting. And and part of the fun of it, really, because then your mind is always clicking and, and you're processing and, and pulling forward in a way.
0: Yeah, it's always, it's a never ending. And, and the whole world in which we work, and many, some ways it's gotten tougher, other ways it's gotten better. And by that, I just meant the availability of information in terms of, you you mention library to a student now and they look at you like what are you talking about you know they you know they don't do that everything's available at your fingertips and at your keyboard and if you ever had to go to the library it would just be the end of the world to find something
2: <laughs> yeah i don't even know yeah i i you know i do occasionally talk to a librarian
0: i don't i never go to a library yeah, anymore it's uh So that part of it's really good. You know, I said the the negative thing I think we encounter, you know, with students today is when you and I were a student, you know, you got a journal in the mail every month and you actually looked at it and, and hopefully read some of it and did that. Now they don't, you know, that keeping up with information. Yeah, you can access information about a specific topic, but keeping that breadth of information and keeping up with that is really harder in today's world, I think, yeah. We've tried some things to improve that for students, yeah.
2: That's interesting. No, I I, for a long time, I was so proud of my Journal of Animal Science library because Dr. Campion, who you may remember, was my major professor for a while. He gave me his, so I had like Journal of Animal Science back to, I don't know, the the 50s, And, and I threw him away. I mean, in the end, I I'd, I'd had boxes of these journals that I poof from house to house. So I kind of went, I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, but, same thing.
0: But now I almost wish I'd have kept them because they are sort of like a, an antique or something. Yeah, I had, I had dairy science that a faculty member gave me that was bound from beginning of time, you know? And I brought them with me from Kansas and ended up throwing them away. It's just kind of like, eh, really, it's obsolete now.
2: It's true. But but you're right. It, there was a cost to that obsolescence that I, I think the old guys sit around with a with a, with a chat and a and a beverage someday sort of go yes. But we we had something we gave up, and that's an interesting interesting thought there. Maybe it's a it's a, it's an interaction with your students or with your peers where that breadth can kind of come back that that we used to get because
0: we looked through the whole you know journal that was in front of us, not just what we had published. Very much. My my colleague was just telling me about an uh, a program yesterday that will tell it whatever journals you want and you can get those indexes every month right to your email I thought, Well, that's really good. I like that i got I gotta test that out. so yeah, so some of it's just learning, I think, but yeah, things are different, yeah,
2: well, Dr. Armmond, I think you know we've kind of covered it. I, I really wanted to talk about ingredients with you, and I feel like you know we've kind of we've kind of come to a place where we say, yes, there. They're valuable and they tell us something, but, but we're really there to deliver nutrients from them. And that's, you know, that's kind of, I don't know, I thought that I really, I thought with your breadth that, that came through pretty well. And, and I like your idea about this nutraceutical, very broad. And, and, and you sort of poke at it and go, boy, there's something there, uh, but hmm, graduate students needed and, and work needed. Who do you, let's talk one more thing and sort of doing a summary, but it comes to mind, funding. You know, at one time maybe we we were all you know tuned into to, to a, a balance between the the federal NIH NSF. Maybe you get some some uh, agricultural funding from uh, groups there, and and then of course there's industry. How how does that relate to your research? What's what
0: what's out there? You know, as you're training your students to write those grants, and what what do you think? It's still anywhere you can find it, you know, we have a mix of industry and some federal dollars. And, uh, you know, we have been very fortunate here for the last several years. We have a USDA laboratory in the college. And so they are tasked with forage animal production. And so they are housed within our college and they pay the college a fee for that space. And then, in turn, the college has made that money available for research, and so the the cost is you have to kind of work on their project in terms of forage animal production, which is what we do. So it's okay, and so that's been a good source of funding for a number of years. And uh, but yeah, one of the one of the challenges for us, we just keeps getting more and more is cost of graduate students. What do you think if you write a grant, Dennis, and you want to have a PhD student for three years? How much money does that cost you? You know,
2: are, are are you asking me because I don't know? I'll give you a
0: number, and it will
2: it will be woefully uninformed. But I'll I'll say with with benefits and everything, you've got to
0: be over fifty thousand a year, right? So you're you're at one hundred and fifty. Exactly, at the very least, our minimum stipend is like twenty two thousand. For a graduate student, and then but you have to pay tuition on top of that. You have to pay health insurance. You have to pay uh, fees, and then you have to uh, figure overhead in. So it ends up like one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, you know, for a three-year PhD student. Well, who's going to pay that? You know, that's really a challenge for our graduate student program, and it's it's hurting the whole university. I think it just yeah. And I don't have a solution, right?
2: So um, you know, you you have to get a really sharp pencil to start pulling those kind of grant funds in, and in um, an area somebody wants to fund. I mean, those are
0: those are not trivial things. Not at all. Not at all. And so it's uh, it's a challenge, and the future people are going to have to figure that out, you know. And I said the only the only places that have lots of money are human health. Let's be serious, and uh, so it's it's a tough one, yeah. Well, I think we have, you know, we have a population that's very
2: interested in pets, and somewhere bringing that interest back into an understanding that we can optimize and and enhance, you know, the lives of pets, and that en- enhances the people that are around. That somehow there's
0: there's a story to tell. I don't know how that comes into funding. Well, you know, the at the animals, I went to the animal science meeting in New Mexico this year. And gosh, there was like four, four or five sessions on companion animals. It, I think it was the it was the biggest section of the meeting, probably. So that was good to see. That's really grown, I think, uh, and sustained. And it was that way last year as well. And so there's people out there doing companion animal stuff. There was more industry people there presenting stuff. A lot of it was like... I had a poster. Yeah. And uh, so that was good to see. Now... Well, that's good. I
2: wonder, you know, as we wrap up, do you have any any sort of overarching thoughts? You would think, you know, if I could communicate this to to people interested in pet food science, boy, I wish I
0: could. Any any thoughts there? <laughs> oh wow! Uh, you should have told me that one ahead of time, Dennis. Yeah. A little note. Yeah, this
2: this isn't gotcha stuff. You know, this is this is a couple of, couple of research
0: scientists having a chat. So I'm glad to do it with you. Yeah. No, no. My thought, you know, I said, what do I learn? I think there's a lot of really good pet foods out there. Our our pets are very fortunate. You know, there's been a lot, a lot of work done on their behalf. Yeah. Like I said, yeah, I don't have an answer for what's best, but there's a lot of good stuff out there. I'm confident of that, you know? Yeah. Thank you. And I would like to thank you for your training of many
2: uh good research scientists and of course the work they did while under your umbrella if you will has been things i've always read with interest and found uh, you know found great value in so i appreciate that i
0: really really appreciate you saying that certainly the training of students is the the best part of what i do you know that's been the real joy i've said it. i'm not having any more grad students you know i just finished my last one he's a postdoc now so yeah, you know, the interest inside. Yeah. So where are you? Are you are you still in Kansas?
2: Um, I actually no, I'm retired and now now living in Wisconsin. So I'm doing this as a, a little bit of a chance maybe to give back a little bit and to try and tell people, you know, here's here's there is truth, there is value, there are things that, you know, you can you can bring into space to really make sense of some of these harder nutritional questions, which which people are interested in. So that's kind of what drew me into this podcast space. And chance of getting to interview people like yourselves with a lot of uh, background and wisdom and understanding. I, th- I think there's, yeah, it's a good thing. That's what I'm doing. And I'm writing. I don't know if you see I I'm still writing. So I like doing that. So my publication numbers have gone up since I've
0: retired. That's, that's unsustainable, but uh, I've enjoyed it. Good. Good. As a student, I never like to write whatsoever, but the older I get, the more I enjoy it. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I enjoy working on paper. If you get a chance to write a book
2: sort of overarching of, you know, here's been my experience. I'll buy it. Um, I think it'd
0: be fascinating. Yeah. No, that's not on my agenda.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks for having the time and talking with us today, Dr. Armin. I have appreciated it and Look forward to future
0: interactions. Appreciate it very much. And best to you, Dennis. Good to see you.